You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that the gut is sometimes called the second brain, but you actually probably already knew that. But your gut is smarter than you'd think. It's the only human organ that functions without the help of your brain, and it's got 100 million brain cells, holy neurons, right? In fact, the gut sends signals to the brain via the vagus nerve, and you actually send more information from the gut to the brain than from the brain to the gut. Uh, In other words, your brain is translating gut signals as emotions, and so when someone says trust your gut, it might be worth doing. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is a well-known guy, a guy I really respect, a guy whose name uh, was on the back cover of the Bulletproof Cookbook. And his name is Dr. David Perlmutter of Grain Brain Fame. Uh, David, can you say Grain Brain Fame three times fast? Because I just about fell over on that. I, I can, but I don't know if you're going to hold me to that. I, I won't. But I just realized that was a major tongue twister. Uh, people uh, who aren't familiar with your work may not know that in addition to being a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, you're a neurologist. 
and that you've written in things like archives of neurology, neurosurgery, and and so you're not a quote normal doctor, although you are an MD, but you're doing both nutrition and neurology. So you've crossed over from two different disciplines, which is why you have a different way of thinking about things. True. No, I'm just saying. I I, I guess being abnormal in this context is a compliment. So thanks for that. Uh, it, it it is meant to be a compliment. And the reason that you're back on the show today is that I just had a chance to go through your newest book called Brain Maker, The Power of Gut Microbes to Heal and Protect the Brain for Life. And it's already a bestseller, but I wanted the Bulletproof audience to get a chance to hear about your new research because you are one of the, the few guys who has successfully written about the brain for the mainstream with a neurologist and a nutritionist perspective, it, it's an unusual thing to do. And your books are always things that if, if I see one, I always read it. And now that we know each other, I, I get the advanced copies, which is even more fun. But uh, even long before we met, I was reading your stuff because it's good. So, so thanks for being on the show. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted. Thank you, Dave. Why did you decide to write about the gut as a neurologist? Million dollar question. And I have to say that, you know, as a neurologist, we were schooled in pretty much staying focused on the brain and exploring the brain, studying the brain uh, under the mistaken notion that, you know, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. And the reality <laughs> is uh, that the brain is highly influenced by the gut uh, for and, and this has relevance for every neurodegenerative condition that has a vowel in its name, basically. So, I mean, we now understand that the mechanism that's leading to Alzheimer's and Lou Gehrig's disease, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, you name it, autism, ADHD, is one word, and that is inflammation. Uh Where is that coming from? Well, inflam means, in Latin, to light on fire. And where is the fire? Well, before we get the answer to that question, I would submit that all of the so-called treatments that I had been schooled in and that neurologists still continue to pursue are not looking at the fire, they're looking only at the smoke, meaning uh, they are squarely focused on dealing with symptoms that occur because inflammation has done done its dirty deed. Inflammation in the body has its genesis in the gut. And that's a, a big leap for a brain specialist to take, to recognize that South of the foramen magnum are things happening that influence the brain. We now fully understand that the set point of inflammation in the human body is dictated by the very bacteria and other organisms that live within the gut. It's a very sobering notion for myself as a neurologist and others. Uh, It's a sobering notion for dermatologists to recognize that inflammation of the skin is in fact mediated by the gut. Uh, that inflammation in the joints, the province of the rheumatologist mediated by the gut, that diabetes is an inflammatory disorder, as is cancer, as is obesity. So when we get to the source, which is the gut lining, which is maintained by healthy balance and diversity of the gut bacteria, then we begin to understand why, number one, changes in the gut bacteria and loss of diversity can threaten the gut lining, and number two, Uh, how that leakiness of the gut or permeability then mechanistically leads to inflammation, the cornerstone of basically every degenerative condition you don't want to get. So it really calls to our attention the need to focus on one word, and that is diversity. That the diversity of the organisms that live within us is absolutely on the front 
uh, center of the stage in terms of what we need to uh, uh, preserve and also what we need to expand if we're going to have a handle on these really severe global health conditions that we call chronic degenerative conditions. Uh, I had arthritis in my knees when I was 14. I had strep throat every month because I lived in a basement with toxic mold that we didn't know about. Uh, so I, I took antibiotics pretty much monthly, like for a week or two, every month for 15 years. And that might have had an impact on my microbiome. Uh, just saying. Might have. Let me tell you, one course of antibiotics will change a person's microbiome for the rest of his or her life. That's a very sobering notion when we revisit what I just mentioned, and that is that, therefore, uh, that changes the bacterial diversity, reduces the diversity, and sets the stage for leakiness of the gut, the cornerstone of all inflammatory conditions, including arthritis in a teenager. Kids shouldn't get arthritis, uh, and yet uh, it's happening. And, you know, we should then explore what is it that's compromising diversity and, you know, for purposes of your audience, what in the heck can we recommend to reestablish this diversity and therefore limit inflammation? That's the take-home message here. That's the the big question. There's there's a lot of scientists out there who kind of sit up high on their their uh, lofty things and look at epidemiology and, and proclaim things, and there's absolutely nothing actionable or useful. And and I, I kind of feel like they're mostly science trolls. Like like I'm just gonna sit here and, and you know say I don't like this, I like that, whatever. But okay, what are you gonna do about it? So you're writing books, like here's the program that tells you what to do, and I want to talk about specifically what our general audience should do, and then I want you to tell me what I should do. Like, should I be eating my son's poop? It sounds disgusting, but fecal bacterial transplant things are becoming successful. So we'll get into that stuff. Uh, But I I wanted to go back because what you're saying matches all of the research I just did for my mitochondria book. Like, Like, it is inflammation. It's always been inflammation, and you control that and things work better. But at the same time, you've got some guys who are, are pretty, pretty at least on paper, they look pretty good, like uh, uh, David Katz, who's this guy from Yale, but he looks only at epidemiology, so he's like basically looking at spreadsheets, as far as I can tell. And he said something that I, I thought might actually be a compliment, and I, <laughs> I'm looking for, for it in my notes here. He said that, quote, Perlmutter is way ahead of any justifiable conclusion. Now, this is a, a field of science, epidemiology, which I think has probably poisoned Americans more than anything else because you look at what data you can get from large groups of people, even if the data is completely useless, like a lot of it is, and then you draw conclusions and then you tell people to do stuff on that without understanding the underlying mechanisms at all. It, it's, it's like a Ouija board for nutrition. Let me, uh, let me let's explore that because it's a really inter- interesting topic. And uh, to get to the specifics of Dr. Katz's um, commentary on my work, uh, he was specifically, back uh, in 2013, uh, responding to the fact that Grain Brain had come out and uh, was really uh, focused on the notion that sugar and carbs are threatening to health in general and specifically to brain health. And how validating it is that just earlier this week, front page of the New York Times, a study, uh, you know, results from a study of um, uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, showing the level of conspiracy that led us all to the notion that fat is bad and sugar is good that began in the late 1960s and was 
highly influential in actual peer-reviewed medical publications from such journals as the New England Journal of Medicine. So, uh, you know, to get back to, so frankly, I feel a, a great deal of validation, not only from that report, but all of the studies that are coming out saying, hey, it isn't fat. It was never fat. It's sugar and carbs. We could talk about the mechanisms on and on. And, and frankly, you know, vis-a-vis -vis our earlier conversation, sugar is profoundly detrimental to the diversity of the gut bacteria, and yet another mechanism whereby diets higher in sugar relates to this mechanism of inflammation. But was I ahead of my time? Yep, thank goodness. <laughs> we uh, need that. <laughs> what epidemiologists do is they look at populations and issues within those populations and also at the same time look at disease processes within those populations. So they might say that uh, uh, men who have a crease in their earlobe are uh, show an increased risk for coronary artery disease. Well, we happen to know that's true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the creasing in your earlobe is going to give you a heart attack. Uh, it's just, it, it, this is causality uh, conclusions as opposed to things just being related. Should I cancel my surgery to have my earlobes removed? Just... <laughs> no, you shouldn't. <laughs> but it brings up a good point. Let me, let me even be more dramatic. I mean, here's an observation uh, that uh, it seems to me that whenever it's raining, uh, people are driving around with their windshield wipers on. It doesn't mean that if I go around and tell people to turn off their windshield wipers, it'll stop raining. So we have to be very careful about drawing conclusions about causality when we see these relationships. And I, I, I respect that. However, in my field, in neurology, we often don't have the luxury of waiting for a double-blind placebo trial for uh, people with Alzheimer's and Lou Gehrig's disease uh, when these studies may take 10, 15, or 20 years uh, to be validated and published. We, we owe more to our patients. And as I began seeing the literature in the past five to 10 years that strongly correlated uh, elevated blood sugar, for example, uh, to risk of Alzheimer's disease, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, September 2013. That was effect. without the $50,000 fee that got the sugar research published in the New England right. Journal of Medicine. And here's an article, <laughs> uh, here's a study, uh, among many, many studies, that showed, for example, that people who had even mild elevation of blood sugar to like 105, which no one's going to get excited about, these people followed for about seven years had a dramatic increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Wow. I thought that was damn important. Did I go beyond what is uh, typical and publish a book talking about this and warning people to regulate their blood sugars? You bet I did. Now, turns out that we were right. Have I been wrong about things? Of course I have been. In the past, you know, 20 years ago, I wrote a book that talked about lowering your dietary fat for multiple sclerosis. And in fact, I was very wrong about that. I'm going to continue to be wrong moving forward, but I'm also going to continue to be right from time to time. And hopefully the right uh, decisions are going to outweigh the wrong decisions. But that's the beauty of what we do, that we stay current and we modify our recommendations based upon current science. Am I criticized for flip-flopping? I'm not running for public office. You can take it or leave it. Uh, and that said, uh, so the idea uh, that there is bias in what is reporting in peer-reviewed journal, I think journals is is valid, and I think we're really learning all about that. But you know, um, 
it, there's nothing, there's no hidden agenda here. There's, there's, we're not selling anything. I'm just giving people the, the best advice as I see it today. There are two things you need to bring about change. You need knowledge and then you need action. And as it relates to your health, I'm doing my best for the former uh, to provide people what I think is the best information. That is, we need more dietary prebiotic fiber. We need to reduce our carbohydrates. We need to get rid of our sugars and we need to welcome healthful fat back to the table. And uh, we need to exercise every single day. Well, you and I will talk about why that's important probably in a few minutes. It It's really interesting. I, I had a chance to talk to Craig Venter, the, the guy who, the first human to have his full genome sequenced. And I've actually got my whole genome sequenced now too, uh, using like the same data set there. And I, I asked him, I said, look, given all that you've learned right now, what should we do today? I said, or should we spend another five years sorting through the data and then, and then just have pizza and beer in the meantime? And his answer was really telling. He said, let's sit down over pizza and beer to talk about it. I and sat down with pizza and beer. I didn't have pizza and beer. I sat down <laughs> and had lunch with him uh, oh, you did? probably cool. about, about a month ago in uh, uh, Nantucket, as a matter of fact. It was just a coincidence, but... I asked him a similar question as it related to Alzheimer's disease. What did he say? uh, He said there's really nothing that shows uh, any of our lifestyle choices have any real bearing on risk. And what can I mean? You know, here is a man who I revered. I mean, I have uh, I I have I talk about him in my lectures about how he sequenced the microbiome of the oceans. It's a really exciting story. But I was a bit disappointed. And and Craig, if you're going to watch this, uh, no love lost here. But I was a little disappointed because I knew. And I know that there are powerful effects of certain lifestyle choices in terms of increasing or decreasing a person's risk for Alzheimer's disease. Having said that, I am that person. My dad passed away with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I am that person. I deal with it on a professional basis every single day. So um, I'm not faulting uh, many people who uh, really need to have dots connected in a very strong way before a statement is made. Uh, do I make statements before there is that level of scientific certainty? I do. I yeah. do based upon well-backed-up hunches. And here are the hunches. Cut your sugar. Exercise on and on. And ultimately, you know, primum non nocerum, above all, do no harm. I don't see the harm <laughs> in telling people you should exercise, cut your sugar, welcome healthy fat back to the table Use coconut oil, take some MCT oil, monitor your vitamin D level, make sure your magnesium level uh, is adequate. There's no downside. There's only an upside. And so uh, I'm not I'm not going to quit. Uh, we're going to we're going to keep at this until we realize some change. And Grain Brain is now in 27 languages. So we're getting the word out. And it's it's there for people who open their minds and want to embrace a notion that isn't spoon fed to them. Uh, based upon industry influence, which we just learned has been profound and going on since the late 1960s. And it, it, it takes a certain amount of courage because where you are is, is you're working with patients. So you're on the front line. And what happened to me when I was in my, my mid-20s, I was fortunate. I had made $6 million that I, I lost a couple years later. But I'm like, I'm fat. I'm inflamed. <laughs> I'm tired. My brain isn't working the way it used to. And I am scared for my life. I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat, eat, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat in two years because I bought disability insurance, for God's sake. And wow. um, not a lot of people under 30 do that. But I'm like, like I, I can feel that something is slipping away. 
And if someone was like, well, I'm doing research in 20 years, maybe we'll know something. I think the expletives I would have chosen at the time, because my brain was inflamed, which makes you angry, uh, would have been long and carefully selected. Well, like I, I would have been basically F you. And I kind of said that to the doctor who offered me nothing, except that vitamin C could kill me. So <laughs> like when you're dealing with someone like your dad, who is dying, the, the do no harm, I'm sorry, if you're going to sit there and be like, well, let's wait till we're 10,000% sure, you actually are doing harm. Because we, we know the direction things are heading. So, so you owe it to a patient to say, well... We don't know, but this might work. Do it for a couple of months because it's unlikely to kill you. Hint, you're already on your way to dying and life sucks in the meantime. That, though, takes courage because there are more than a few people who've had their medical license uh, uh, put on the line. And oftentimes they keep it by saying, well, the standard of care is based on you know, 20-year-old science. It wasn't working for this person, so I did something else. Oftentimes, I saved their life, and yeah, I took them off gluten, and magically two weeks later, their brain wasn't inflamed, and they were happier. So, so just thanks for being courageous and standing up and, and doing that. I think it's cool. Well, we, you have to do it. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan uh, said that status quo is a Latin term for the mess we're in, and uh, <laughs> it is. I mean, it, we have to have outliers in order to move the ball down the field. If we're all parroting the same notions, then there'll be no progress. And now we learn that, you know, this hallowed uh, gold standard peer-reviewed medical journal has been feeding us BS uh, for 40 years. And it's, it's breathtaking how pervasive is the notion that we should have our whole grain goodness and don't worry about sugar, but the real culprit is fat. Most people still cling to that. Well, not most, but a lot of people still cling to that idea. And, hey, I, I still am criticized on Amazon comments about my books that, oh, uh, you know, if you increase your fat, you're going to die like Dr. Atkins died. And Dr. Atkins died because he slipped on ice and cracked his head. So, uh, I mean, he, a close well, there, person. There's a, there's a clear friend. association for guys named Atkins who eat a high fat diet, the odds of them dying by hitting their head. So, a high fat diet causes you to hit your head. It's just epidemiology. I mean, that's right. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's correlation versus causation. Right. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's never been a study that says, um, that compared, uh, took two people. One was a placebo and one was a, c a control group. The placebo got a parachute and the intervention group got no parachute and they both jumped out of an airplane. <laughs> so the conclusion is that uh, maybe if you wear a parachute, you're likely to survive jumping out of an airplane. No one's ever done that study, but I think we all agree it makes sense. And I think the yeah. balance of information that we have now allows us to, uh, that it, uh, to say that it makes sense that sugar is bad news, uh, that we're, the hidden sources of sugar are ubiquitous in our culture. And it's not just sugar per se through the mechanisms of insulin and insulin sensitivity reduction and leptin sensitivity reduction and all the things that sugar does, glycation of our proteins, etc. We now look at the higher sugar and carb diet through the lens of the gut bacteria, getting back to our original topic, and the profoundly detrimental effects in terms of reducing that diversity that we need to have uh, in the gut bacteria brought on by diets high in sugar or even worse, brought on by artificial sweeteners, explaining now finally uh, yeah. why it is that people consuming artificial sweeteners have a much higher risk of obesity. You know, on the outside, that makes no sense whatsoever, where you're drinking a couple of liters each day of a drink that has not a single calorie, not a single gram of sugar, and yet you're getting fatter. 
Well, you yes. know, Isra Israeli researchers looked at that and they did human and animal studies and they found that the reason is squarely with the changes occurring in the microbiomes. And in fact, uh, took their study to the, a crossover between animals and humans, induced the microbiome changes in, in uh, humans by giving them artificial sweeteners, transplanted their stool in the laboratory animals and even the laboratory animals suddenly got fat with no change in their diets. Ooh, I haven't seen that study. When but we're it, done, I'll send it to you. Really okay. interesting. But beyond that, uh, the other relationship with the artificial sweeteners that's so absolutely fundamentally uh, related to the changes in the microbiome is this incredible increased risk of type 2 diabetic diabetes in people consuming artificial sweeteners. Makes no sense. Hey, I, I was drinking uh, Coke, but now I'm drinking Diet Coke and I've increased, I've doubled my risk for type 2 diabetes. It all settles back with the changes in the microbiome. So uh, we've got to make some, we've got to screen this information out because people are truly under the wrong impression here that getting off sugar-sweetened drinks in favor of artificial sweetened beverages is a good choice. It is not. So, so what, what if someone says, you know, I... I really I don't have a lot of artificial sweeteners. Just like once or twice a week, I have a piece of gum full of NutraSweet and sucralose and and acylsulfame, potassium, and all these other things. Uh, yeah, how big of an impact is that going to be? Like, how often does it need to be dosed? I, I would say, for God's sake, it's you get like neurotoxicity for the stuff. Like, never allow it in your body. But a lot of people like there's somewhere else on the on the the curve for that. How bad is a single dose? I don't think anybody knows. And yeah. uh, I think that, you know, there is what's now described as orthorexia, where people are so uh, involved in eating the right verse and excluding the wrong foods that they go bonkers. And so it's crazy. Uh, there, there comes a point. I mean, is there a little bit of sugar in the 85% dark chocolate that I have every day? There, There is. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there is. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, why do you need to chew gum? Why do you need to alter your mouth microbiome? Uh, you know, give it up. Or if you have a piece of gum, uh, okay. Uh, enjoy it. You know, Deepak Chopra once said something that uh, in a lecture I thought was really compelling. He said, look, I'm not telling you you have to quit smoking today if you're a smoker. But what I do want you to do is the next cigarette that you have, I want you to go outside, sit down in a chair, and spend time with your cigarette and connect with your cigarette. And that was profound because... You know, so many people that are smoking are on the phone, they're on the computer and, and whatever, and they're not really relating to the fact that they're doing that thing, smoking a cigarette, which we would mostly agree is not a good thing for your health. So I think when people begin to connect with uh, what they're doing, I think it, it has more traction in terms of making lifestyle changes. And I, I've often said that, you know, we tell women when they are pregnant, uh, oh, be careful now because you're eating for two. Well, I would say that uh, what we should be saying to everyone, male and female, pregnant or not, is that we are all eating for a hundred trillion, meaning that the foods we consume have a huge influence on the health and the diversity of the microbes that live within us. So when we start looking at our food and other lifestyle choices through the lens of the gut bacteria uh, and the role of then uh, the health of the gut in terms of inflammation, then our food choices become really, really important. You put locks on your home. You buy home insurance. You have an alarm on your car and you buy car insurance. You've worked hard to build your business and yet you don't have any cyber insurance to protect it. 
Small businesses like yours are especially vulnerable to cyber attacks. Over 40% of cyber attacks in 2015 targeted small businesses, and 60% of those small businesses attacks closed within six months. Let cyber policy keep you safe. Cyber policy is the first end-to-end solution that combines cyber planning, security, and insurance customized for small business. With cyber policy, your business will be protected against cyber attacks. Get peace of mind for as little as 40 cents a day. Secure your business. Visit cyberpolicy.com and get a custom quote in just four minutes. Look, it's not a matter of if some hacker is going to try to attack your company. It's a question of when. Plan, prevent, insure with cyberpolicy.com. As I've gone through the research for the new book uh, that I'm just finishing on, on mitochondria, I've changed the way I view the body, and, and I want to run this past you, and it's okay if you totally disagree. Um, and you okay. Might, I, like we have, just for the audience, we haven't talked about this, I haven't set it up, but I used to agree with what you would, would say there about eating for 100 trillion, because you're eating for these gut bacteria. But inside almost every cell in the body, there are at least 1,000 mitochondria and, and up to 10,000 in other ones. And these are essentially little bacteria that, from one perspective, our cells harnessed the bacteria hundreds of millions of years ago to make energy in our body. Or where I ended up after writing the book is that uh, hundreds of millions of, of years ago, uh, some bacteria got together and realized that they should have mobile petri dishes called cells. So they moved in and they made cells and then they stored some of their stuff in the cell nucleus. And today we're walking petri dishes for a quadrillion bacteria called mitochondria. Yes, they make power. They also tell us how much inflammation we'll have. They tell us when our cells live, when our cells die, uh, and, and all sorts of other amazing things. And because they're bacteria, they talk to other bacteria. We know bacteria do that. They do it all the time. So you're actually eating for a network of bacteria, whether they're the ones in your cells or the ones in your gut. They shine little femtosecond lights back and forth at each other, and they signal each other that way. Uh, it, so I, I, kind of like a lot of my core motivations come from bacteria, making sure that they get fed, but it's not my gut bacteria. It's me. It, what do you think about that view? Well, as a matter of fact, in BrainMaker and uh, in my new book that's coming out uh, called The Green Brain Whole Life Plan, I include mitochondria as part of our microbiome. Awesome. Uh, no, I mean, and I think it, they're neglected. And I think, you know, when you look at mitochondria, they are bacteria. They have a circular DNA that's not the 23,000 that comes from mom and dad. Uh, and, you know, it's true. They regulate uh, the pre-programmed cell death nuclear genes called caspase enzyme that code for caspase enzymes. Uh, I, I reviewed an interesting article just this morning that talks about how dengue virus is able to manipulate the mitochondria to reduce the activity of interference to help them uh, propagate through and cause more inflammation. So uh, it's, it, there's, a, there's a very interesting interplay. You know, uh, when Lynn Margulis uh, in 1968 came up with this idea that mitochondria were once uh, free-living bacteria that took up residence in what would become eukaryotic cells... Her uh, thesis was rejected by 15 peer-reviewed journals until finally the Journal of Theoretical Biology decided to publish it. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, old habits die hard. People uh, <laughs> are pretty much down on what they're not up on. And now, of course, this is considered, you know, pretty straightforward and dogma. Uh, but I would agree with you that we should embrace this bigger number uh, in terms of 
the organisms that are influencing moment to moment our life. And we are, you know, basically a carrier vehicle for this this huge uh, meta-organism uh, made up of these microorganisms. And you know what? Uh, the phages within the body, these, <laughs> ph these phage particles outnumber bacteria 10 to 1. And we talk about bacteria and other microbes outnumbering our cells 10 to 1, and we're just beginning to explore the role of these phage particles in terms of regulating uh, gene expression of, the, uh, of other viruses, of bacteria, and perhaps even of our own cells. So uh, no objection for me. I'm, I'm right there with you. Are we going to get there in your lifetime to the point that you think we've, we've got this solved? And we're like, wow, it goes down to these you know, subatomic particles, these atomic no. particles all the way up? You know, we, no, we are but, in the, we're in the place right now of taking the one step backwards in order to take the two steps forward. We're having to retrace ourselves away from the germ theory, and that's going to take a lot of doing. I mean, you know, medicine has pretty much been focused on this notion of germs, you know, just the word germ con connotes negativity uh, from the outstanding work of Dr. Louis Pasteur. Uh, you know, there's, no, there's no derogatory sense in my statement. Uh, but that said, most germs uh, in our bodies are there to help us. I mean, we're, we're, we've got this beautiful symbiotic relationship, giving them a nice, warm, dark place to live and feeding them. And in turn, they are making our neurotransmitters, making vitamins, regulating inflammation, controlling the set point of immunity, controlling our appetite, our, our metabolism, our regulation of sugar. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. And that's what we get back from them. And this relationship has been going on for... Uh, a long, long time, uh, you know, and it all begins uh, at the beginning when we're born and we're inoculated or anointed with this information in the form of the bacteria in the birth canal. And that's a highly conserved mechanism as well that is seen, of course, in mammals that are born through the birth canal, but also in reptiles and birds and insects uh, and mollusks and even sponges. So we're talking about, you know, a mechanism of transferring information, genetic inf information through the carrier carriers of this information being bacteria that has a very, very long history, very highly conserved, and we have to respect that. So, you know, it takes us to the conversation about what happens when we bypass being born vaginally and we have a cesarean section and we now know that there are lifelong consequences of a C-section. Uh, C-sections save lives. I'm not knocking it, but I think that when we recognize that uh, becoming obese as an adult, risk of that is dramatically increased if you were born by C-section. Your risk for celiac disease, type 1 diabetes, ADHD, autism, all dramatically increased in kids born by C-section. And I would suspect that if the study were performed, we would also see a significant increase in uh, Alzheimer's disease in C-section babies. That said, you know, one third of all births in America happens by C-section, depriving that child of the initial microbes that he or she needs to form the seeds of his or her future microbiome. Where's where are the David Katzes of the world with that statistic? Because that is epidemiology. You can do, but it's such a big effect. Like this was in the very first book I ever wrote, you know, the, the Better Baby book. Like, like if at all possible deliver vaginally if not have a sponge in your vagina and get the bacteria on the baby uh, and uh, lana and i did that like we delivered both of our kids uh, vaginally I, I caught them both but even when when the kids were first nursing like there, there were special probiotics on the nipples because like it matters um 
It matters dramatically. Why, and why Why do we have such a high rate of this in the U.S.? Like, it, is it- I would say mostly it's defensive medicine. I mean, uh, you know, truly, uh, and with all due respect, I mean, a third of births in America is C-section, and it's been estimated that 10 to 15 percent might require it because of medical necessity. It's a matter of convenience. Uh, there's a myth that women who have already delivered by C-section must absolutely have their next trial by C-section. And I think that, to call it like it is, doctors worry about uh, issues that could occur uh, that might threaten them uh, from uh, with respect to malpractice. So all of these things conspire, and I'm not faulting anyone, but uh, you know, the notion of putting a sponge in the birth canal and then taking it out was, I talked about that in BrainMaker, was yeah. originally work done by Dr. Maria Dominguez-Bello at uh, NYU. And she actually published an article last week in the journal Nature, uh, where finally uh, they've added some uh, a really significant level of science to the notion uh, that there is a transfer of meaningful bacteria. Uh, and, and they were able to sequence the DNA uh, of the stool of the baby at various points during his or her first month of life in those kids who did not get the sponge from the vagina into over their faces after birth versus those who did and found that there is a strong representation of mother's birth canal bacteria in the baby, at least during his first or her first uh, month of life. So what you did uh, it was, uh, and what people do by transferring those bacteria seems to be very, very effective. She talked about it kind of as a proposal a couple of years ago, but now she's validated her work. It's really very exciting. So... There are many people listening to the show right now who did uh, were born with a C-section or took antibiotics a lot, and they should be going, "Wow, okay, uh, I'm not going to be putting you know vagina sponges on my face." And besides, timing matters. Right, so doing it as a baby versus an adult is are totally different things. What what are the things that that based on your experience clinically and all the research that, that you look at and that you perform, that, that you might want to do to have better, better gut bacteria. And again, you know, just to, to phrase this for everybody, uh, you know, Dave Asprey, you and I are, are having a talk. Uh, you're talking to a, a neurologist dealing with things like Alzheimer's, ADHD, autism, and we're talking about gut bacteria. It, it's, it's a bit of a stretch. Just wanted to <laughs> reframe that because even I sometimes uh, have to take a step back. And, I think uh, first we should talk about preservation of the gut bacteria. And again, starting with birth, if you can opt for vaginal delivery, you should do so, and here's why. We've covered that. But I think so much of of what people do these days threaten their gut bacteria. Uh, I mentioned overusage of antibiotics, uh, not just taking them when you have a sniffle, but uh, the antibiotics we are exposed to in the foods that we eat. Uh, the fact that glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, is patented by Monsanto as an antibiotic. So much of our food has residues of glyphosate, meaning we're consuming antibiotics when we eat those glyphosate-treated foods, which include wheat, even though wheat is not GMO because it allows the wheat to ripen more quickly, along with corn, soy, etc., Even so many of the commonly used medications that people think they must take are related to dramatic changes in the microbiome. For example, what are called the proton pump inhibiting or acid blocking drugs that Larry the Cable Guy tells us we've got to take. 
And, and frankly, uh, we, we don't need to be doing that. We don't need to be suppressing stomach acid by and large. So many people are taking the Pepsids, the Prilosex, the Zegarids, all these drugs that change the pH of not just the stomach, which has its own set of consequences, reducing B12 absorption, affecting uh, enzyme activity, but also changes the pH for the entire rest of the gut where our friends are living in their neighborhood, our bacteria. So there are dramatic changes that happen in the gut bacteria when people are taking these drugs uh, and that increases their risk for a potential uh, for death from what's called Clostridium difficile infection or C. diff, which kills about 30,000 Americans each year. And as we just learned uh, from the Journal of Neurology, um, actually Journal of the American Medical Association specialty journal called Neurology, JAMA Neurology, in February of 2016, a study that looked at over 70,000 individuals and followed them for five and a half years found that those individuals taking these proton pump inhibitors, these acid-blocking drugs, had a 44% increased risk of developing dementia. Wow. Dementia is an inflammatory disorder related to the gut. Now, uh, the article speculated that, well, maybe it has to do with B12, compromising B12 reabsorption or absorption, etc., or maybe, you know, we know that a lot of our folate in our bodies or folic acids made by bifidobacteria. The point is when we change the pH, we change the bacteria and there's hell to pay. A study from Stanford uh, last year demonstrated that there's about a 16% increased risk of myocardial infarction, another inflammatory issue in individuals taking these drugs, and that your risk of death from MI is doubled if you happen to be taking those types of drugs, which you see advertised on the evening news. They show a picture, a video of somebody can't eat food, a certain thing, a sausage sandwich or some food that he shouldn't be eating anyway. But you take the magic pill, you can eat whatever in the heck you want. You can eat crappy food and end up looking like Larry the Cable Guy. I might, I'm probably going to get a, a, an email from somebody anyway. But <laughs> the point is... Um, those are dangerous drugs, the non-steroid anti-inflammatories and, of course, the antibiotics. We're just beginning to see the data that's looking at long-term effects of drugs in terms of their side effects uh, that may be related to changes in the microbiome. So what's the good news? So the question then is, what can we do to reestablish diversity of bacteria in the gut and pave the way for better health? and reduce our risk for inflammatory issues like coronary artery disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, cancer. And I think the first thing is we've got to focus on the diet. We need a diet that has a dramatic reduction of sugar and carbohydrates, much, much higher in fiber and specifically prebiotic fiber. That's the fiber that nurtures the gut bacteria. A recent study in the journal Nature was published by the Sonnenbergs, or a husband and wife team at Stanford, and they looked at the effect of fiber, prebiotic fiber, in laboratory animals in which uh, they first measured the gut bacteria, then deprived these animals of prebiotic fiber. The diversity of organisms bottomed out, but was able to be restored when they resumed prebiotic fiber. So that's good news for us. Uh, what they also demonstrated, I think that's pretty compelling, is that with succeeding generations, that ability to rebuild a good uh, microbiome and have better gut bacterial diversity was less and less to the extent that ultimately some species didn't come back, they became extinct. 
it's a good lesson for all of us as we see generation after generation what's going on uh, with the health uh, of our of, of Americans. Uh, so changing the diet and adding in good fat, but most of all prebiotic fiber, prebiotic fiber rich foods are those like jicama and dandelion greens, garlic, onions, leeks, uh, asparagus. These are foods that have lots of prebiotic fiber and will nurture the gut bacteria. Eat fermented foods like kimchi and cultured yogurt that contain good bacteria. Get a high-potency uh, probiotic. All important things. And what we've recently learned is we've seen uh, research actually that was um, just published uh, that shows a significant increase, or relationship rather, uh, in gut bacterial diversity in comparison to uh, individuals who have a high, what's called max VO2. And what the study looked at was it took, I think, uh, 20 or 30 uh, younger individuals, and they weren't necessarily all great athletes, but they measured what's called their max VO2, means here they are on the treadmill with the mask, and um, they're measuring how much oxygen utilization is happening. The higher the max VO2, the better cardiorespiratory shape you're in. And they compared that to the diversity of the gut bacteria, and they found a very strong relationship. Those individuals who had the best max VO2, in other words, the best cardiovascular conditioning, had the highest level of bacterial diversity. Now, wow. d- does it therefore mean uh, that exercise is good for you because it's going to increase your max VO2 and therefore your gut diversity will increase. Uh, I'm not going to say that's the conclusion that the authors were able to draw, but I'm going to tell you I think it does. And therefore, that's why aerobic exercise is important. Maybe uh, David Katz can go ahead and criticize me for that now. Have at it. That's fine. We'll talk in five years. (laughs) I think we're going to see soon enough the interventional trials where they take people measure their gut bacteria diversity and then put them on an aerobic program and then measure them X period of time later and see what changes have occurred. I think we're going to be surprised. Meanwhile, till that comes out, I'm saying, yes, let's do some aerobic exercise. I could be wrong, but hey, what's the harm? So let me just finish. It's a balance in between those things that are damaging our, our microbiomes and then those lifestyle choices that will increase our diversity and help the microbiome. There are people listening now going, exercise, like, what the heck do I do? I, I, I hear high intensity, I hear low intensity, and, and I have some new recommendations on, on this as well. But when you talk about aerobic exercise, how hard, how long, how often? Like, like what, what are, where's your research led you to be on that? Well, I would uh, probably look at the research from uh, Dr. Kirk Erickson at the University of Pittsburgh, who really was one of the pioneers in looking at the effect of aerobic exercise on what we call neurogenesis, the growth of new brain cells. And uh, he has recently published a new study that, again, uh, hammers home the notion that aerobic exercise through the mechanism of epigenetics, in other words, Mm -hmm. changing our gene expression to amplify the expression of a protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, that tells the brain, hey, grow new brain cells. Basically, turning the switch to give yourself stem cell therapy and grow new brain cells where you need them most in your brain's memory center, the hippocampus. And I think the conclusion there is what they've looked at is it turns out to be nothing more than about 20 minutes of aerobics uh, six days a week. You could take one day off. That's what my current recommendation is. And 
I think the question would be, well, what constitutes the right level of exercise? And that really varies depending, obviously, on the person, his or her condition, what medications uh, they may be uh, using. And I think uh, that in these days of Fitbits and other technology, uh, people in working with a a uh, well-trained athletic uh, counselor or even a physician who's schooled in this, can learn to use that technology or the you know the devices in the gym that'll tell you, for example, your heart rate, and you can develop uh, what you want to target uh, for that 20-minute period of time. As a very broad rule, I use uh, tell people, look, go for 180 minus your age, uh, do the math, and that's you know a ballpark, very crude way of uh, looking at uh, what you should target. You know, I, I, it's different for me. I, I generally run a pretty low pulse rate. Uh, If you're taking medication like a beta blocker, for example, your pulse rate or a calcium channel antagonist, your your pulse rate will be lower. Uh, If you're out of shape, you don't want to target such a high pulse rate. If you're in tip-top shape, you know, your target rate will be higher. But the other mechanism that's amplified during aerobics is your body actually creates more free radicals. Oh, dangerous free radicals, it's actually a good thing. Because that indeed is also what we call an epigenetic signal. When we create free radicals, there's a censoring system in the body that says, whoa, we're doing stuff. We better crank out the production of antioxidants, as you'd expect. More free radicals, we have to have a mechanism that says, hey, we need to, take, we need to quench that fire. And that is a pathway called the NRF2 pathway that is activated when we exercise, when our bodies produce more free radicals, also activated by uh, broccoli, um, taking lipoic acid and acetylcysteine, various herbs, and like gratefully... Oh, you're going to say it? <laughs> I'm going there. I'm talking to Dave Astry. Why would I not? Uh, by by uh, drinking as... Go ahead. Say it. Coffee. No, you, you say it. So, I, I, I was like, how did you miss that one? Okay, you were saving it. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, I, I have been saving it for this moment, so <laughs> okay. a prop. But coffee turns out is a powerful activator of the NRF2 pathway, meaning that it tells the body it's got to increase its production of glutathione and other antioxidants. It's got to reduce the production of inflammatory mediators through its role in what's called the NF-kappa-B pathway. So um, these things are not just there so we can tinker with them with drugs. It's been how we have survived. And uh, that's how we have to look at the recommendations that we've made. Basically say, well... What's allowed us to get to where we are today? Uh, What have we been doing for 2.4 million years that allowed us to be healthy and survive so that you and I can have this conversation? And over the past 2.4 million years, we basically used fat and to a lesser degree protein as a calorie source and didn't burn carbs, though uh, industry looks like it tried to pull that one over on us. We finally caught caught them uh, this week. Uh, Humans have survived on basically seeking out fat, Uh, dead animals, eating bone marrow. It's what allowed us to survive. It's a hugely uh, uh, wonderful way of of energy. It's highly efficient. When we burn fat, our production of free radicals is reduced. It's uh, as opposed to when we burn uh, carbs and, and simple carbohydrates, sugar, uh, for as a calorie source. You know, this notion that, oh, your brain needs glucose. Uh, you know, hashtag, uh, whatever hashtag you want, that just ain't the case. When you look at the research from from highly uh, respected individuals like Dr. Veach, for example, I know you know his work. Uh, It turns out the brain thrives in an environment where ketones are prevalent. In fact, uh, 
Even the FDA has approved a medical food that doctors can write as a prescription for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease that increases the availability of these fats that we call ketones. And I know, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. Uh, you know, this is basically what you're going to get when you're either eating coconut oil or MCT oil. It's basically amping up uh, ketosis in your body. Uh, the, the thing is, doing that is, and this is a really important point, uh, you can drink all the bulletproof coffee you want. You can, uh, you know, do what Mary Newport says and be eating coconut oil day in and day out. And I'm encouraging people to do that. Yep. But it's not going to work if you're still eating sugar. Because preferentially, you're going to burn the sugar and not do exactly what you've been talking about. Not convert your body to a place where it's grateful for and happy to utilize these ketones as a primary energy source. So I'm all in favor of, you know, uh, bulletproof coffee, uh, coconut oil, etc. This is the way to go. I do it every single day. But if you're not cutting your carbs, you're making yourself, uh, you're putting yourself at risk for, for more serious problems. About three years ago, I synthesized ketone esters in my lab. And, and for people who are listening to this and also heard the interview with Dr. Veach on Bulletproof Radio, uh, uh, this is a way of artificially raising ketones dramatically. The problem was they were $30,000 a kilogram, so I, I don't know how to commercialize that. Are you sure that's what you were synthesizing in your lab and you're selling it at, uh, on, <laughs> by, by the kilo? It, what it goes on? bags of white powder with tape <laughs> really? and it was carried by donkeys. No. It, it, uh, it was ridiculously expensive, and you know, I had a little tiny vial of the stuff. But uh, I know that Dr. Veach is, is talking about ways to do this. Uh, and do you see a day where we can just kind of pound some ketones and be done with it, and we've got all the ketones we need? Uh, I, no, uh, because I think that we you know, welcome the fact that certain foods that do, in fact, have carbohydrates in them are doing us good. Yeah. So when, you know, the very foods that I recommended earlier are uh, fiber-rich, uh, but basically carbohydrate. Fiber being these, you know, uh, polymers of, of glucose and, and fructose. The actual uh, benefit of these uh, prebiotic fibers is because they are basically polymers of sugar, of fructose. And um, the more complex they are, the more... Uh, benefit they are to our gut bacteria. Uh, for example, acacia gum from the African acacia tree is a very complex uh, polymer of, of fructose that our gut bacteria love. You can buy it in the health food store. Uh, and, uh, you know, the other thing to consider is, is being talked about, and I think it's very relevant uh, as per our conversation of inflammation, in going to a diet that's lower in sugar and higher in fat, we will Therefore, stop signaling our bodies that winter is coming, meaning we don't have to store uh, this adipose tissue, this uh, visceral fat that makes our, billy, our bellies big. And uh, in a recent study, I think it was in uh, March of uh, 2016, this year, in the journal Neuroinflammation. Think about that. There's a journal called Neuroinflammation. How cool. They called attention to the relationship uh, between visceral fat and in terms of how it communicates to the brain. And it does so through these specific chemicals that are called adipokines. Adipo meaning fat, kine meaning they have um, activity. And you're familiar with some of these. Uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, a cytokine. 
uh, adiponectin, uh, and even leptin, which has a role to play in controlling our appetite. These are chemicals manufactured in our body fat that cross the blood-brain barrier and have dramatic effects upon the brain. So it, uh, it really is an interesting way that uh, body fat uh, is then looked upon as an endocrine uh, gland. It's more than just a storage depot for calories for the winter that never comes, but it's influencing our, our behavior, our appetite, uh, and certainly influencing inflammation, inflammation, a very important uh, cornerstone, as, again, for these chronic degenerative conditions that are, according to the World Health Organization, the number one cause of death in the world, now surpassing infectious diseases. That is, uh, it's profound when, when you think about how little that is accounted for in the recommendations you hear almost everywhere. Um, I'm, I'm still in my head stuck on this idea around exercise increasing microbial diversity in the gut. It, that, that you sent me the study two days ago and I'm like, that is the coolest thing I've, I think I've ever seen. And I, I did a lot of digging, and, and I, I talk with exercise physiologists, uh, guys, and there isn't that much nutrition plus exercise, like academically. Like, it seems like there's a little bit of a firewall there in a lot, a lot of times. Uh, like, you know, the guys in the sports science department aren't necessarily walking over as, as much. They are in the last couple of years and talking on a really deep level on, on the nutrition and neurology side. Like, it, it's coming together, but... Uh, it's so slow. Yeah, I'm not wait- I can't wait around for it. You know, I'll take my lumps. You'll take your lumps, and uh, you know, I'm hoping that people see we're trying to light that single candle, and uh, we do have to curse the darkness from time to time. Sure. And when I talk with those guys, there's I believe a shift happening. And Mark Sisson uh, was was on recently talking about I, I was wrong. I, I'm an Ironman athlete. And I was training with uh, age minus 40. And it, it turns out I needed to do a high intensity, like a sprint once a week. But the rest of the time, I needed to almost like go for a walk, like a very slow exercise. And, and where I've shifted, and I want to vet this with you, not to debate the merits of either one, just to understand your thinking behind this. Um, I've shifted to this, look, you should for 20, 30 minutes a day, uh, move around, like, like go for a walk. But it doesn't need to be like, you know, I put on a leotard. Like, it doesn't need to be as aerobic as I would have thought it would have been 10 years ago. Because just going for a walk for a half hour a day in a study increased, oh, geez, was it mitochondrial density or mitochondrial performance? It was one of the two, by 68% or up to 68%, depending on the people, in 12 weeks. So you're like, it doesn't maybe need to be as intense. Because for people listening, few of them, other than the most hardcore, are going to, all right, I'm going to put on my exercise gear, I'm going to go for my 20-minute run, I'm going to go take a shower, but almost everyone can go for a 20-minute brisk walk while they're on a conference call and and get some sunshine while you're at it, right? Like, it's kind of a good deal. Do you think that that heart rate is is terribly important for the microbial diversity, or can can you do it Let me just say, (laughs) as Faye would have it, uh, here's a terrific book. I'm, I'm not here Deskbound. to hold. Yeah. Deskbound. All right. So that's Kelly, Kelly Starr, right? It's great. I mean, and what he talked to, terrific guy, uh, is that we're just sitting on our butts too much. Yeah. And uh, and it's really true when you think of the number of hours in the day that you're doing your stuff on the computer and you're doing this and that. And that's not, again, that, that does not emulate what our ancestors did. And um, if we're trying to emulate that, then we've got to be up and about and, and doing things. 
And I, I think that um, it's it's very very relevant. So now we're seeing uh, desks that are that come up, and you can stand at your desk or sit on a ball that you're moving around on. But I think that um, it's called sedentary sickness. You know, the fact that people think that they're going to pound that exercise and get it all in, and then spend the rest of the day sitting on their butts, doesn't work that way. And and I I totally agree with you. I think that. You know, we're just beginning to unravel these epigenetic signals that are changing our gene expression for health or not based upon our lifestyle choices. Uh, And, you know, beyond that, now we've had a discussion of the changes in the human microbiome based upon our lifestyle choices, not just food, but exercise as well. And, you know, the third leg of the stool is sleep. And, uh, And I think we're at the very nascent stage of under understanding the role of sleep uh, in physiology, in general pathophysiology, uh, but also in terms of changes in the microbiome. Uh, We see a dramatic increased risk of Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia in people who have issues with uh, sleep disorders, either uh, sleep apnea uh, or other issues. And, uh, you know, in my new book, I, I talk a lot about go have a sleep study. No big deal. Yes. Spend the night in a sleep clinic, put on the pulse oximeter, have your uh, EKG monitor and, and, and just make sure because it's the, the some of these things require a little appliance in your mouth or who knows what. But it's a big issue. We're supposed to sleep. We're supposed to sleep deeply. And a lot of people aren't. And one of the simplest things that we have found uh, related to insomnia, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, uh, poor sleep hygiene and early morning awakening is uh, just having low magnesium level, yeah. which is uh, found in uh, about 60% of Americans because we're eating food that's depleted in trace nutrients, trace minerals. So that's a simple thing to check. And uh, I, I'm a big proponent of choosing out, uh, choosing magnesium rich foods, dark green leafy vegetables, nuts and seeds, etc., broccoli. Uh, and using uh, some form of magnesium supplementation because it helps people sleep, it reduces inflammation, and magnesium is a critical cofactor for what you were just talking about, and that is mitochondrial function, how we allow our mitochondria to make energy from the very uh, fatty acids that we are presenting to them. It, it's fascinating because I'm, I'm a huge fan of a good night's sleep, and I also believe fundamentally, and, and this will piss off half the audience, I would like to be able to not sleep if I didn't want to without paying a biological price for it. Like sometimes I'm having too much fun and I just don't want to go to sleep and and I'm willing to own that. I still go to sleep at least most of the time. And if I don't, I take protective measures as best I can. And I think most people we know who are listening have pulled an all-nighter once or twice and felt crappy for a couple days, but they still pull the all-nighter because they like it was worth it, right? So one of the biggest things that makes a difference in your sleep quality is mitochondrial function. If you have your, your power plants in your cells, if you have enough energy to rebuild things when you're asleep, you can rebuild better and you'll probably need less sleep to get the work done. And there's some studies about that that, that I've referenced in the last book. But what I found, and this has actually radically shifted my understanding of magnesium and something that is, is a pretty substantial change in the recommendations, there's a circadian timing. In other words, like, like the, the daily ups and downs of magnesium. And the time of day when magnesium is highest in our cells, and magnesium, like you said, it makes mitochondria work, it's highest at noon. 
So what I started doing is I take 80% of my magnesium with my Bulletproof coffee in the morning. I just took a handful of magnesium pills. And then I take 20% at night because you want to have magnesium for sleep quality, but you want to follow the daily rhythm so that at noon when you're supposed to have the most magnesium present in the body, you can. And no one knew this till last year. A study came out. I'm like, no one had ever thought that minerals might move on a circadian basis like that dramatically. Uh, so I, I'm with you on magnesium, but I, I shifted my timing both to enhance sleep, but also maybe to have more energy in the middle of the day. Is that going to affect my gut biome? Like, like I, I don't know. This, this is pretty cutting-edge stuff. Hmm. It, it's a good question. I mean, what we do know is that, uh, for example, proton pump inhibiting drugs also have a dramatic effect and, and uh, in terms of magnesium and lead to... Uh, can lead to hypomagnesemia or, or low levels of magnesium. But, you know, uh, what you say is very interesting that it does peak out, uh, magnesium does peak out intracellularly during the middle of the day. And I would suspect there may be a little bump in the nighttime too. Probably. And it, and it emulates, uh, this is brand new science, it just was published about 3,000 years ago, it emulates, <laughs> you know, the Vedic texts that talk about the three uh, doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha, uh, and pitta being fire that does peak out in the middle of the day, but also peaks out in the very middle of the nighttime as well. So it, you know, there, there are three doshas, but then they vary twice a day, like the tides um, in most places. So uh, it, it's interesting to consider that. But, you know, your uh, intracellular level of magnesium uh, depends upon, you know, your total body uh, availability. And I think that because our foods are grown in such trace mineral depleted soils that we're just not getting the magnesium that we need. And, uh, you know, frankly, uh, people who are, are going to watch this podcast are going to run to their doctors and say, I'd like, I'd like you to check my magnesium level. And please understand that your standard blood test for magnesium is about useless. What you want to ask your doctor to do is simply what's called a red blood cell magnesium level or erythrocyte yes. magnesium level because it gets back to what you just said and that is we depend upon magnesium inside the cell so again it's simple blood test most common labs will do that now but your typical serum magnesium level tells you virtually nothing yeah it, it's it's so important red blood cell minerals are what i look at to know whether my body's getting it because like who the heck cares if you went swimming in something if it didn't absorb through your skin and that's kind of what's happening in your bloodstream right yeah, and you know, uh, our how we work really depends chemically moment to moment on the function of the enzymes in our body, bodies that allow things to come together, things to be broken down, energy to be harvested, DNA to be made. And more than 320 of our enzymes in our bodies are fundamentally magnesium dependent. So uh, it's just another argument in favor of uh, check. It's a simple test. I mean, it's right there for me with vitamin D as being on the very top yeah. rung in terms of its importance. And unfortunately, one of the most uh, overlooked uh, uh, parameters uh, in, in modern medicine, vitamin D and magnesium. So critically important. So very, very simple. So very inexpensive and yet uh, not getting the legs that it really needs. Uh, I, I appreciate you doing all of the work, like the, the number of books you've written to get this information out there, because waiting another 30 years to see if science maybe gets there where they're going to agree with you, I'm planning to remain young and youthful for the next 30 years. Uh, and I'm doing, From what I heard longer than that, I, I, I heard something about, what, 130? 180 is my 180, goal. okay, I'll meet you there. But <laughs> I got a head start. 
here's the cool thing. Maybe I won't make it, but I'm going to feel really good along the way. And like, that's what really matters. But I, right. I might make it. I think I actually have a, a real shot, assuming a piano doesn't fall in my head. Right? Health, health span versus lifespan. I'm yeah. with you on that. Yeah. I'm going to be and, 81. <laughs> no. I am. Not 20 years from now, but... Okay, you know, I was like, you can't be 81. <laughs> I'm going to be 81. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, for people listening... The number of years is really important, but if your last 30 years you have Alzheimer's disease, they're not going to be as good as they could be if you're actually dating, you know, someone half your age. And I say that kind of, you know, jokingly, but I've run an anti-aging nonprofit research and education group uh, called Silicon Valley Health Institute for almost 15 years. And one of our board members, uh, Mike, uh, was 88 years old, and he literally was dating a 35-year-old. And he wasn't some lecherous old man. It just kind of happened that way. He was one of the smartest uh, guys I know, an, an SRI researcher, incredibly full of life and vibrance and, and focus and, and mental cognition. Where, like, when I'm 88, I want to be like Mike was uh, because it, it was incredibly inspirational for me to see that you can do it. And if you don't take the steps when you're 25, you're much less likely to get there when you're 85. And, and I just wish someone had told me that when I was you know, young and fat, that I would have known what to do. I wish I would have had access to yearbooks when I was 16 because it would have made a difference, right? I hear you. And uh, we all had early life transgressions that we wish we could um, undo. But um, you know, I, I will say that the longer people wait, you know, to, to really uh, engage in the re their resolutions, the harder it's going to be. I mean, you know, I see people at our gym that uh, let themselves go and now are back with a trainer and God bless them for trying. But uh, I think, you know, the message is that um, you know, the Neijing, the Yellow Emperor in the 4th century BC said that prevention is the ultimate principle of wisdom to cure a disease after it has manifest is like digging a well when one feels thirsty or forging <laughs> weapons when the war has already begun. And that's the message here. Um, you know, am I 100% right about uh, exercise and low carb and increasing dietary fiber and fat? Um, probably not. But it doesn't I think matter. You're directly Maybe we're 80%. Right. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're certainly not categorically wrong. And uh, we do know that uh, this is on the risk-benefit scale here. We're, we're uh, looking really good. So... Uh, you know, my message uh, will change in the years to come. I mean, the next time I sit down with you, there will be nuances of, yeah. of difference. And that's a good thing because yes. um, it's evolution. It's not stagnation. So given all of the, the new findings that are coming out and, and the new findings in BrainMaker, uh, which, which is a book that I highly recommend people listening, you should read BrainMaker. Like, like it is, is a really good book. But given all that stuff... I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you last time you were on Bulletproof Radio, but I want to see if you change any of it. Mm. Someone comes to you tomorrow and they say, look, I want to perform better at everything I do in life. By the way, that includes aging. But it, you know, I, I, want to, I want more of, of, more of all the things I like to do. What are the three most important pieces of advice you'd have for me? You know, it's, uh, it's, let me answer the question by indicating that I actually wrote a book to answer this question. Uh, it's, it's my new book. It's called The Whole Life Plan. And I, ha I have to preface my answer by uh, telling uh, a little story here. And that is, in March of this year, I was going to get my teeth cleaned in my car. Well, they weren't going to clean my teeth in the car, but I was in my car uh, going to get my teeth cleaned. And I got a text message uh, from, which I shouldn't have answered in the car, but gratefully I did, 
from a friend saying, come to the ER, Mike is dying. And what that meant to me was Mike was uh, my closest friend. He married my wife and me. He's our daughter's godfather. I turned around, went to the ER and uh, went into where he was in the emergency room and found that Mike was on a ventilator. And I asked the family to step out of the room and I examined him and uh, he was brain dead. Had a massive uh, bleed into his brain. We uh, kept him on the ventilator for the next 12 hours in order to let the family members arrive from around the country. And then around 11 o'clock at night, uh, after everyone had been with uh, Mike, I uh, went into the room with the respiratory therapist and we took him, we took the tube out of his throat and he passed away. Yeah. Uh, I didn't feel so great the next day. And that evening I went out to dinner with my wife and daughter uh, and um, I didn't feel well when I got home and then I felt really bad. I, I mean, probably the worst I'd ever felt in my life. Uh, I lost, you know, I vomited all over the floor. It was a horrible experience. And um, the next morning we got a call. I felt a little better from Mike's wife saying, look, we're going to have a, a memorial service, collect up the videos and the pictures. And, and I looked at a video that uh, Mike and I were in a band and we we had opened for Richie Havens at a benefit con a fundraiser, whatever. And I watched the video of him singing, Can't You See? And I then had to sit down on the couch. I didn't feel well at all. My wife looked at me and I must have not looked good. And she said, I'm going to take you to the hospital. Can you imagine? And I said, no, you're not. And she thought I was being stubborn. I said, you need to call an ambulance, which wow. was astounding. The ambulance arrived. I was in uh, florid atrial fibrillation. My heart rate mm. was 180. They took me to the hospital and uh, they couldn't break it. And they gave me intravenous medication. I'm in the, here I am back in the ICU, uh, cardiac ICU on telemetry. The medicines weren't working. My heart was just out of control. They're getting their, you know, charging up the paddles to shock me back into wow. rhythm. Everybody left, you know, visiting hours are over. I then had a conversation with the nurse uh, who was taking care of me and he was explaining, you know, just things about his life and caring for me and adjusting the IVs. And I suddenly felt this overwhelming compassion and gratitude for this individual. This just happened in March. And wow. at the moment that I had this feeling come over me, my heart converted to sinus normal rhythm and then the rate started to come down to normal. Uh, later that evening, I actually was able, I kept checking over my back to, uh, shoulder to see my heart rhythm was good and the rate was getting slower and slower because as I mentioned before, it's generally pretty slow and I still had a lot of medicine on board to further slow it. I finally fell asleep around four o'clock in the morning. I woke up and I looked at the heart monitor and I was flatlined. I had no pulse. There were no alarms and I closed my eyes and I thought that, well, uh, this is how it is, you know, or maybe, maybe I'm dreaming. And I closed my eyes, I opened up my eyes again, and I was alert. Uh, there was no one in the room, there was no noise. And I said, I'm obviously not dreaming. I guess, uh, you know, what happens now? And I said, wow. maybe, maybe, uh, maybe one of the leads came off. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I, I traced all the leads from the monitor to my heart and one of them had popped off. I clipped it back on and beep, 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 back in the game. <laughs> okay. So this is, uh, this is why doctors are terrible patients, by the way, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, it's a good thing anyway. 
So ultimately, I convinced the nurses to take out my IVs, you know, at five, six o'clock in the morning. They got me unplugged. And uh, by the time the cardiologist came in, I was doing yoga on here. I am, you know, an up dog on the floor <laughs> in the ICU. And he said, well, uh, I guess that means you want to go home. I said, I really do want to go home. He said, you can go home directly home from the ICU. How often does that happen? Yeah. He said, but you have to come back for a stress test and an echo and the whole bit, which I did. And he got me up. God, I'm on the treadmill and I'm at 180 and they call the, because I'm cranked, you know, and it's inclined. They call the doctor and he said, you all right? I said, I feel great. You know, let's bring it. And he said, you got a good heart. Everything's fine. So I, I, to answer your question, it was a long way to get to the question yeah. of gratitude. Uh, I knew it was going to go to gratitude. Yes. And I think that is the most important feeling that we can actively uh, not only understand, but choose to participate in. Recognize those moments day in and day out for which gratitude is the call to action. And in that gratitude, uh, recognize that giving back is a form of demonstrating gratitude I'm going to put at the top of the list. I don't know how I answered your question before, but I'm going to put gratitude at the top of the list because I think it's the most helpful experience that humans have. Um, you know, beyond that, exercise, cut your sugar, eat more fat, all the other things we know are, are good. But um, it, it, it was an experience that really um, was so good for me in terms of recognizing the importance of the kindness of others and how compassion yeah. should rule the day. And we see so little of that these days when we see what's going on around us in terms of compassion and goodness. And so my my hope is if that's the plea here and that's what uh, will, will resound. Uh, I, uh, I I love that you that you answered it that way. And it, it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes is actually a, a Mr. Rogers quote. And he talks about how uh, when he would see, you know, disasters and car accidents and, and things on TV, his mom would look at him and, and say, look for the helpers. Like every time you see these big terrorist things, there's always right there in the video frame. There's always people coming to help, right? And in your case, you had a nurse who was a helper, right? But they're always there, and, and you can frame the world as oh, it's so terrible, or look, something happened, and people immediately came to help, and it, it changes your biology when you do that. Like it matters. Your, your gut biome changes. I, I know very well if you measured before and after your gut biome would have shifted. And I will tell you the mechanism. The mechanism is really quite simple. We know that cortisol has an immediate and direct effect in terms of changing the microbiome and increasing permeability. So this is not out there. This is actually very straightforward. When we bombard ourselves with stress and see to, uh, choose to see the disaster and not the helpers, we increase our cortisol, we change our, our microbiomes. I had an experience in an airport, uh, it was Dallas airport recently. I got off the plane, I was walking to get uh, to the baggage area with my wife and there was a place on, on the left side where they would change your money, currency exchange from one country to the other. And I noticed that um, the woman uh, who was in the booth, running the booth, had a headscarf on and I felt myself respond negatively to that uh, because of news and all, all the craziness that's going on. And I realized that all that had influenced my perception and I immediately tried to reframe that, knowing through neuroplasticity, the changes, I, you could work on 
more adaptive uh, pathways and strengthen those. To look upon that individual with love in my heart. And, uh, you know, what's happening right now is we're seeing people are getting, their minds are changing, their perception of the world is changing based upon what they're, based upon seeing the disaster and not seeing the helpers. And, um, you know, uh, Dr. Michael Merzenich, who I believe you've interviewed. Uh, fact, you know, yeah, he's, he's going to be doing a course with us, actually. Wonderful. I mean, uh, he, he really calls to our attention the notion that we choose to sculpt our brains. And as such, it becomes the mechanism by which we then see the world. Uh, we choose to sculpt our brains based upon what we are exposed to and how we uh, choose to frame the experiences that we have. As Mr. Rogers' mother a great sage once told us to look for the helpers. Uh, and it works through a very complex mechanism of neuroplasticity. So, uh, you know, for those who need to connect the dots from a very mechanistic scientific perspective, that's how it works. But we have got to um, realize we can change our perception. We can make this glass absolutely half full. Well, I'm, I'm glad we didn't uh, lose you to a broken heart. Because I, I mentioned my friend Mike, uh, who was 88, um, he his his kids were in a horrible car accident, and he was gone a month later of a broken heart. Yeah, and you know, after I had this event, uh, I did, as you would expect, the uh, literature research correlating uh, stress and uh, onset of atrial fibrillation, and it was, you know, of course, as you would expect, vast. Uh, but um, we take these as important life lessons, and I think. Um, there's a lot of good to looking at these as, as uh, instructive, as seeing the helpers, not, not the uh, tragedy. And um, if I, I, I think if I hadn't had so much love for Mike in the first place, then his passing wouldn't have affected me. You know, really what, uh, uh, what happened to me is I spent the night as a neurologist, not as, a, as his friend and as a human. And finally the next day it hit me uh, as his friend and uh, that I had lost him. I hadn't processed it, uh, but there was a, a time that I had to function as you know the physician, and I didn't give myself that moment to uh, grieve appropriately. Yeah. And um, I held on to Mike, I think, until the moment that I converted back into normal heart rhythm. I held on to him because I felt this thing happening to me, and um, good experience. I think it's made me a much better person. What did you do for the nurse? Uh, I wrote this about him, Good. and I expressed this to him. Um, it was, a, you know, we spent the night together in the ICU and had conversations that uh, were very, very uh, empowering for both of us. Uh, it turns out that he had performed CPR on his brother, who wow. passed, passed in his arms. So what I did for him, I guess, was to allow him those moments to to really uh, connect with those experiences in his life. You know, this was one of the most profound experiences in my life, for sure. And uh, um, do I say that I'm glad that it happened? You bet I do. You bet I do. I'm really looking forward to reading that book. When does it come out? November uh, 15th, uh, The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan. I'll get a copy to you right away. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to read it, and I, I think uh, listeners will, too. Well, the, it's based on the premise that Grain Brain and Brainmaker talked about why, and then the new book talks about how. How do you implement what? Now that you understand it all, 
how do you exercise? How do you ensure sleep hygiene? How do you balance your magnesium and your level? How much DHA, vitamin D should you take? What should you do from a dietary perspective? It's really now the action plan that works for me and I think is substantiated. Hopefully it'll work for many people. Yeah, we, we might be wrong by, by 10%, but it's a hell of a lot better than what you're doing now. <laughs> that's, I'm there. That's the direction. So. Well, thanks, Dr. Perlmutter, for being on, on Bulletproof Radio. Where should people go to find out more about your work? I mean, you're an easy guy to find, but what's your favorite URL? Uh, Facebook, David Perlmutter, MD. And my, uh, my, my main uh, blog page is uh, drperlmutter.com. And have you started Snapchatting yet? I should, but I'm Instagramming and <laughs> tweeting, and uh, but I guess I should Snapchat. Uh, I, you know, when does it I all started. end? I, yeah, I'm, I, I have I'm not Dave done Asprey that. on Snapchat, and uh, it, it's time consuming, but it's kind of fun. And you know, there's only so many hours in a day, like you're saying. But it, yeah, uh, but it, you know, I do these live videos, interactive videos with our Facebook population, that's uh, fun. And, and and those live forever. But as and as opposed to Snapchat, you could Snapchat, you can go back and look at the Facebook videos into perpetuity if in fact uh, that's true so yep I'm, I'm with you there well people know how to find you on Facebook now and they know how to find your books uh, Brain Makers the latest one and you've got a new one coming out in November tell me the title of the new one again it's called The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan and it'll be published one week after the presidential election think about so, that sounds like a very good time we're going to need something because yeah. what else will we distract ourselves with <laughs> true <laughs> Thanks, Dave. I sure appreciate it. I had a wonderful time. Thanks again. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to iTunes and leave a rating. This was a fantastic interview, if I do say so myself. Uh, and I appreciate that Dr. Perlmutter took the extra time. So just leave us a review and give us five stars and say thanks. And that's a small way you can show gratitude, which, as we just explained, will help your gut biome. Have a beautiful day. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.